0: Hello and welcome to the Gentleman's Journal podcast, our fortnightly interview series all about success, modern business and the lives of entrepreneurs. I'm Joe Bullmore, the editor of Gentleman's Journal, and I'm joined this afternoon by Andy Coulson, the strategic advisor, former Downing Street comms director, former editor of the News of the World and one-time resident of HMP Belmarsh. Across the 90s, Andy worked his way up from a local newspaper to take on one of the biggest jobs in the UK media before jumping over the fence to join the Cameron campaign as DC ascended to Downing Street. Then, following the news of the world's phone hacking scandal, Andy was sentenced to 18 months in prison, a part of his life that inspired his new podcast, Crisis What Crisis, in which he talks to a wide array of people who have, as he puts it, been up and down the hill a few times. In a fascinating episode, Andy discusses how he dealt with what we might call David Cameron's TOF problem, tells us about the entrepreneurial lessons he learned in prison and discusses the dangerous symptoms of a condition he calls editoritis. Enjoy. But before we begin, I'd love to tell you about The Clubhouse, a new kind of private members club brought to you by Gentleman's Journal. Clubhouse members get two bumper issues of Gentleman's Journal magazine delivered straight to their door, full of all those invaluable insights from the worlds of entrepreneurship, style, politics and culture that you'd expect, as well as exclusive deals with a range of partner brands, restaurants and hotels. Not to mention some lovely invitations to some very exciting events across the year. In fact, our podcast listeners, which is you, now get 20% off a Clubhouse annual membership, meaning you'll get the full Gentleman's Journal experience for just under £48 a year, which sounds a bit like a bargain to me. Just enter the code POD20 at thegentlemansjournal.com slash club. That's P-O-D-20 at thegentlemansjournal.com slash club. Right, on with the podcast. Andy, thank you very much for joining us on The Gentleman's Journal podcast. And we're here, of course, to talk about your career in perhaps one of the toughest and uh, in many ways, I think, most entrepreneurial industries out there, although people don't often think of it like that, journalism. And also, of course, your work as a Downing Street advisor and other elements of your life and your work now, of course, as a consultant. But before we get started, I want to get your take on the big kind of media story of the last two weeks. Your hot take on the whole Meghan Markle, Prince Harry, Piers Morgan, Oprah Winfrey circus that seems to have dominated headlines for far too long,
1: in my opinion. What's yeah. your take on it? Well, I totally, I totally agree with that. Uh, thanks for having me, by the way. Great, great to be with you. Um, I don't have that hot a take, really. I, th- I suspect my take is somewhat tepid um, <laughs> uh, because you know, there, was, there was a time in my life when I would have been completely obsessed with this. Right, where it would have been, you know, kind of dominating my every working moment. Yeah, but I really, I, I I'm just, I just really struggle <laughs> to get to get excited about it. And I, I'm of course because it touches, you know, what I am doing professionally now. I am of course, you know, very interested, as we all are, in in how the world is changing and shaping around, you yeah. know, issues of of race, uh, what we're seeing this week as we're talking now, you know, in terms of the uh, horrible crime in London uh, that's also caused people to look at uh, the conversation around female safety. Um, I'm, of course, very interested in those issues, but, you know, when it comes to individual stories of this kind, I just can't get that excited about it anymore, and that's probably my failing, but also means, by the way, you know, and I came to this conclusion relatively recently, I'd be an utterly hopeless newspaper editor now, right? Because to to be a to be a really good tabloid editor in particular, you know, and I was one for a while, you've got to spend most of your time in one of two places, right? You've either got to be utterly excited, energized, thrilled, or you've got to be utterly furious and Mm -hmm. indignant and angry right that's that's not entirely right but largely that's where you you kind of spend your time swinging between those two Mm. those kind of two points and i just i just don't have that in me anymore you know, so no. the, the the things that I and possibly is it's as a result of the things that I've gone through, I'm sure my experiences, I think is also a bit of age, frankly, you know, I'm in my 50s now. So although I can recognize the significance of this story and it is a significant story, right, because it is getting to the, the to the of the some really important issues for the country, um, you know, the future of the royal family and and, you know, the relationship with the media obviously has been an ongoing debate, but. Um, uh, for many years but in terms of the 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 kind of you know sort of daily commentary that seems to attach itself to this stuff i just i can't i can't get involved in it there's a um there's a, a Ricky Gervais clip that you might have seen that's kind of, you know, been thrown around WhatsApp groups, I think, over the course of the last week. I won't repeat exactly what he says, because your uh, your uh, adult only rating will have to be kind <laughs> of advertised across your podcast very very, light, very widely. But I would urge anyone to listen to this. If I haven't yeah. seen it, go and seek it out. In short order, Ricky Gervais's view of celebrity is essentially my view of celebrity. But, yeah. you know, I think you want to talk about it in the newspaper days. This hasn't always been my view. Of right? course. I used to spend my life writing a showbiz golem. Yeah. So, um, so
0: this is a change in me, Joe, that's for sure. Okay, that's interesting. I wish in, in many ways, Piers Morgan, another tabloid former editor, had the same kind of sanguine philosophical view of things. He seems to be animated, as you say, at both ends of that spectrum, both furious or very passionate at once we'll um, yeah. be interesting to see what he does next.
1: well Piers is a very good very old friend of mine and, okay. and, the, and, the, th- and the thing that people misunderstand about Piers uh, on occasion is just how hard he works right and just how uh attuned he is actually and I know he's not to everyone's taste but you know when you look at how n- where newspapers have gone and you look at where you know a lot of what sort of popular journalism is about, you know peers frankly has understood how that can now be applied to you know the, the the changing you know media uh not least through you know changes in technology he understood that better than anyone right he's, he's built an amazing brand for himself and i think actually you can look at the the, uh, the megan stuff but it wasn't that long ago that people were you know lauding him as their kind of superhero right for the yeah. way that he was taking on politicians over the nhs so yeah um, but I so said, I'm heavily biased, right? He's a, okay. He's a, he's a, a mine. Has he come to you for, for advice? No, oh, he's, he's, nick. He's, in, he's, in he's, you know, he, he, you know, he
0: won't be short of offers. That's for sure. Yeah. Well, it'll be interesting to see what he does next. So let, let's talk about those newspaper days when you were coming up. How did you get your start in,
1: uh, the press? Uh, well, I, you know, I followed a, a fairly, uh traditional route one that is actually quite difficult to follow these days you know i tried to become a journalist when i was 16 years old um i was i was uh, ready to join the air force my dad and my brother were both in the air force uh, one of my brothers and and that's what i wanted to do uh and uh, my girlfriend's mum at the time was the uh, fantastic woman was the editor secretary on the local paper and she said, "Look, why don't you come in and do some work experience while you, before you really make up your mind to go and uh, to go and join the military?" And uh, and I went and did a, a couple of weeks' work experience. And, and honestly, it was a, it was just a kind of walking through the door into a newsroom. Uh, that and the combination of then you could literally walk down a few steps and you're in the print hall and the smell of the ink. I, I just loved it, you know. And and when the presses started as an evening paper, when the presses started, you know, the building would shake and the typewriters there typewriters and I'm that old you know the typewriters were kind of juggling on the on the desktop you know it was um it was just I just completely fell in love with it and I decided at the age of 16 right this is what I want to do in my life and they wouldn't employ me at 16 they refused they insisted that I went and did my A levels against um, mm. uh, which I really didn't want to do so I did that, did my levels, and they treated their word. They gave me a job when I was eighteen, and wow. so I didn't go to university. I went straight to journalism college for six months. Did my indentures over the course of two years. Soon as I completed my indentures you know, got qualified, I, uh, I started shifting up in Fleet Street first for the Mirror, then for the Sun, and then uh, then I got a contract on the Sun, and it all kind of uh, it all kind of took off from there.
0: What was it that that so attracted you beyond the the kind of romance of the printing press and the smell of the ink? When I speak to other journalists, it's a combination of wanting to get to the truth of a story and also, in a way, being closer to it than other people and getting a better read on it than other people. There's a kind of, I don't know, an idea that you could be more plugged in and connected as a journalist um, yeah. and really get to the to the kind of levers of power. What was it that made you so
1: excited? Well, it developed over time, right? First, it wasn't very sophisticated at all. Yeah. It was, my God, I can sit at a typewriter. <laughs> I can write a picture caption as it was then i wasn't you know exactly being entrusted with the front page you know i would be writing up check presentations yeah <laughs> right? and it would appear as a picture caption in the evening echo but it might have my byline on it and you'd see you did you walk down those few steps to the printing presses you'd see the papers come off you'd have it in your hand and there was your name in print so that was the that was the sort of first feeling my god i can actually just sit at a typewriter create something and then see it in print over time you know the, the draw of journalism for me was that uh, seat in the front row right uh, and initially I was a showbiz journalist so it was a literal seat in the front row of any concert that I wanted to go to the celebrities I was interviewing by the time I got a bit of traction at the sun I'm flying around the world interviewing mm. famous people that in itself for a bloke in his 20s was just unbelievably exciting but of course, it's the bigger picture as well of being part of a product, being part of an industry where you are every day dealing with whatever the big issues were, right? Yeah. At first, as a young journalist, you know, right on the edge of it, on the periphery. But as you move through and become an exec, and then as I ended up as an editor, you're right at the center of all that. You know, yeah. And and sales at that point was still pretty high. The influence of, you know, the tabloid newspapers was perhaps, uh, you know, a bit more impactful than it is these days, frankly, mm-hmm. because of that. Uh, and you really did feel like you were in the center of everything. Uh, and you were actually at the center yeah. of everything. It was incredibly exciting and compelling, challenging. You know, tabloid newspapers when I was, you know, in my, in my 20s were very, very different place to what they are now. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a lot of negatives that have been written around that, you know. Uh well perhaps we'll get onto that later. Yeah. But I can tell you it was when I look back on it, it was and again, I've only done this very recently, right? Because my newspaper career ended very, very badly. And the tendency when you've gone through something so negative in the way that I did, is that you sort of chuck it all in the bin, right? That you just sort of think, Well, I just don't want to think about any of that again. Yeah. And it's only very recently that I've started to sort of think in a bit of a different way, actually. There were enormous positives. You know, I can't lie about it. My 20s were amazing mm. in newspapers. I thoroughly enjoyed it. There were some really difficult moments, challenging moments. But what I remember is an incredibly exciting environment, not perfect by any means. From an HR perspective, my God, yeah, uh, uh, wouldn't wouldn't work in today's wow. modern workplace i can tell you but i'll tell you what it was though is it was um it, it was a meritocracy yeah. you know not at any point uh did anyone stop me in a corridor and say where did you go to school sunshine you know yeah. never happened it was all about what can you do how good are you you know can you deliver people weren't bothered about your background or any of that any of that stuff uh yeah. they wanted to know if you're any good and i was It was an exciting time. You know, you mentioned Piers earlier. Piers and I, that's how we met, right, as young journalists on The Sun. There were some really talented people around showbiz, journalism in particular at that time. Uh, Richard Wallace, who went on to edit The Mirror. He now produces uh, Simon Cowell's uh, programs. Uh, Matthew Wright, Kate Thornton, Mm -hmm. you know. Um, It was a really exciting time. And it was also an incredibly competitive time. Deeply, deeply competitive.
0: When I think of the 90s, and this, this may not be the most accurate view because I was a child for all of them, but I think about the rise of new Labour and the Sun's kind of political dominance, particularly, yep. and also the kind of new introduction of this idea of a spin, which maybe wasn't out in the open before,
1: mm-hmm.
0: potentially the kind of golden era of the Lad Mag on the other side of it. That's right. And, you know, the dominance of Page Three, um, yeah. which I don't think exists anymore, does it? Not in the same way.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, now in my, my day, you're, you're quite right. The whole kind of the tanks on the lawn were loaded and an FHM yeah. and yeah, yeah.
0: Exactly. And also, of course, as you say, the showbiz column, which sounds very fluffy and lovely, was actually the most competitive combative, probably cutthroat place to cut your teeth as a journalist. I wonder what you think, how much you think that era, that nineties time has shaped what we're seeing now, whether it's in celebrity obsessed culture, or I don't know, the kind of the access we now ha- have to the, politicians and what we
1: expect of them in a kind of tabloid sense maybe i think there was a gear change in that time i think the gear change was around the relationship between celebrity and the media yeah Uh, there's always been a relationship between celebrity and the media right you know um, uh, richard burton and you know Taylor. you know they were posh and pecks of their time it was you know the the, the idea of a newspaper being obsessed with celebrity was not given birth to during my time no but what did shift in my time was the commercial nature of the relationship and the deal-making nature of the relationship and that really is why you know my career uh developed because i was reasonably good at that you know i was someone who could get a story but that i could do it in a way that everyone came away happy. You know, wow. the, the celebrity came away happy. The agent or PR was delighted. My editor was happy, you know, and I and I was happy. That was my approach. I was very kind of collegiate in the way that I did stuff. Now, that's not to say that there weren't some proper moments of tension because my job was also to occasionally write stories that celebrities didn't want to uh, read about, right, or didn't want to see published. Did you ever try and squirm out of those stories? And Yeah, I do. absolutely. I don't know about squirm out, but I had my own. That's the other thing, right? There was this meritocracy idea that i mentioned but there was also autonomy Mm. right i had real autonomy especially when i had my own column right and and i i could put in it what i wanted to put in it you know i mean the editor would take a view if you thought it wasn't up to scratch but broadly speaking i was in charge of my own sort of mini newspaper that's why actually so many bizarre editors went on to be editors because that's how it operated it was like running your own paper in a way and so i had complete autonomy so yes i had the responsibility the power if you want to put it that way i never really saw it as a power but i certainly had the ability to pick and choose and i had my own you know i had my own code i had my own view on what i think was fair and and unfair and i'm not going to try and claim that i made all the right decisions at all there's a fair bit of you know evidence to suggest that i didn't but yeah there were definitely times when i thought i'm just not going to i'm not going to run
0: that The impression people have from the outside when it comes to particularly celebrity coverage that can have a really negative impact is that not only do the journalists um, feel they have to do it, but they actually feel that potentially they take a glee in it and a joy in it. And I don't know, tabloid editors are sometimes painted in that kind of light, almost like they're willfully um, taking people down. Was your sense that if you were doing anything negative, it was fair? I mean, how did you... How did you feel
1: about that kind of stuff? Yeah, I tried to be fair, but I'm not going to try. I'm not going to pretend that every story I wrote ticked that box of, of everyone coming away happy, right? Yeah. Absolutely not. The bulk of what I was doing, though, because I was a showbiz journalist, the bulk of what I was doing was in that kind of deal making space. Yeah, you know, well, I, as an editor, published stories that you know, to use Dave, just use David Beckham as an example, right? That 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 he would absolutely not have wanted to have seen published, of course. Yeah. When you know, when those guys got engaged, because I knew them, and you know, I certainly knew Victoria Beckham pretty well. You know, when they got engaged, their absolute uh, approach was to call me and say, Look, you know, we're going to be getting engaged on this day. Why don't you come down? You can have the exclusive take pictures of the ring. Wow. And, uh, and by the way, you know, we'll want a fee for it. Right, Which is exactly what we did. Remember, this was the sort of birth of the whole, or, or around the time of the birth of the whole kind of Hallow magazine. Yeah, you know, celebrity deals, celebrity weddings. You know, you know the whole, that whole era, and that was that, that was that was a deal, right? You know, I mean, I, yeah. it was a great read for our readers, and it was pretty useful for them too. That was the bulk of what I was doing, but there were also stories, of course, that, that people would prefer not to see published. And of course, when you become an editor. And by then, obviously, I've gone way beyond showbiz. It's exactly yeah. the same principle with politicians.
0: And with politicians, something seemed to change around then. If you look at kind of interviews from the the Thatch or even the John Major era, there seems to be a base level respect and reverence from journalists and a less, I don't know, less personal style. People cared maybe less about, this might be wrong, but people seem to care less about their... Own personal upbringing or background or personality, and more about what they actually did. Then it seems to become around Tony Blair more about a kind of cult of personality and stuff. Were the
1: tabloids in some way complicit in that kind of change? Do you think? Yeah, I think they were part of that. You know, a good tabloid, you know, is reflective. It's not, you know, you do drive an agenda. Yeah. You only succeed if you if you're reflective, right? If you are if you are in tune. Let me put it a better way. Mm. If you're in tune with your readership, and I think that Blair understood that, and positioned himself in a way to to be as famously uh, yeah. as attractive to a Sun reader as he was to traditional, yeah. you know, Mirror readers. Uh, he knew exactly what he was doing. You know, Alistair gets a, a deservedly so. Uh, Alistair Campbell gets good credit for the way that he handled that operation, but you know, Blair was a brilliant, instinctive communicator in that sense. He knew he needed to broaden that base and he knew he needed the sun. And he worked very hard at it. You know, I remember yeah. him coming into the office when I was, when I was still editor of the bazaar and doing the tour. I think he came in and spent a good couple of hours walking around the office shaking hands. And was just um that's the first of many times I met him and he was, he was, you know, he knew exactly what he was doing. It was a very strategic piece of thinking and brilliantly executed.
0: And you were made editor, of course, of News of the World mm. at 35, which
1: seems astonishingly young. Actually, you know, not that young. Piers was a lot younger than me when he Piers was the was the was the sort of uh, pioneer, really, in a way. Yeah. In fact, that I think I think I'm right in saying there was a News of the World editor in the dim and distant past who was about the same age as Piers. But Piers was in his late twenties. Yeah. You know, and obviously he'd, he'd edited Bizarre before I did, and he was the the pioneer, if you like. And there were uh, so I was young, but I wasn't. You know i wasn't the youngest um, but it was it was young to be an editor you know there was no training course no. you know i'd not i'd not spent the previous three months uh with you know some locked in some room with mckinsey you know yeah. being 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 told how to how to run a uh, multi-million pound enterprise yeah uh, so it is it really is uh certainly was uh you're chucked in at the deep end you know, yeah. and, and you will, you know, you will swim or you will sink and plenty of editors sunk. Um, I suppose you might argue ultimately things didn't work out particularly well for me on that front. Um, but editing a newspaper is, you know, as with all these big jobs, there's the caricature of it, uh, and then there's the reality of it. And the reality of it, particularly on a—I spent most of my time on a daily paper, right? So I was—I was the number three on the Sun for a number of years, and I edited a lot of editions of the Sun. Very different enterprise to the News of the World, which is a—you know—obviously a, you know, a once-a-week affair. Mm-hmm. Pace of the week is very different. And News of the World was, despite its big circulation, was very much the kind of—you um, know—the sort of poor relation in the in the, the news, in terms of big corporate decision making. So I spent a lot of my time down the corridor fighting for the paper, making sure that we got the right budget, making sure that we had the right marketing money. This was the time of the, you might remember this, the ridiculous time in newspaper history. One might argue that accelerated its decline where we decided, genius strategic move, that the only way to convince a reader to spend their hard-earned cash on the news of the world was if there was a free film inside. Yeah, I remember that. All right, so you, you'd have half the front page would be the words "free inside" uh, with a Tom Hanks DVD or something similar, and I, and that was that was like kind of marketing crack, right? If you didn't have it, you would your sales would plummet. Yeah, and it was an arms race. Every newspaper was doing the same thing every weekend. It's a ridiculous situation. And so I spent a lot of my time far from sitting in the office, which is the caricature sitting in my office, you know, wondering whose life I could ruin. I was actually down the corridor trying to preserve, you know, the, the business of, you know, the, the of, of, of the, the, it was the news of the world, right? How, how do we keep our place here? How do we keep our market share? Football is incredibly important to the news of the world, right? So making sure that you've got the right result down to the right news agents right, is very, very important. Uh, it sounds yeah. ridiculous, I know. Uh, but those kind of challenges are practical challenges because you've got to be printing the paper at the right time and you want an extension on your deadline and all that kind of stuff. So that's where, that's where I spent a lot of my time as well as around the you know, the kind of what, what I suppose you'd call the entrepreneurial bits, right? How do we you – know, this is the early 2000s. I, I'd worked on the internet actually for a while before I, became to, before I came to the News World, before I became editor. And we were alive to the technological revolution that was coming but not really we we weren't we weren't you know we were still arrogant enough to think that we'd find some answer to push it back madness really with the benefit of hindsight and so i spent a lot of time thinking about how do we diversify this brand how do we how do we you know build a really good website how do we kind of make use of this fantastic content that we were creating uh, particularly around video Uh, which you know we were smart enough to realize was the future uh, and and mobile phones, of course, uh, in terms of delivery of content. So yeah, I mean, it was a it was a proper business challenge with zero business training. Why do you think you were selected at
0: a young age? What were the the attributes maybe that? Is it Rupert Murdoch who made those
1: calls? Is he actively picking Yeah, name? editors were appointed by 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 Rupert, but Les Hinton was the boss then yeah. uh, as the sort of chief exec of the company. So he was my immediate report, uh, my boss. You know, I don't know really. I think it's, um, you know, I think I, I, I was a pretty successful reporter. Mm. Uh, I've been a pretty successful exec. I think I'd shown myself to be capable of producing a newspaper, just in terms of the, the sort of practicalities of it. Right? You know, I knew yeah. I knew how to put the thing together. I knew what a story looked like. Stories were always my thing. You know, some editors are, are less about the story, more about other elements of the paper. I was all about the story. And I'd written and edited papers that have broken some very, very big stories. And I was hardworking. You know, I think I was, you know, I was, I've, been, I've been pretty loyal to the company over the years. So, yeah, I mean, it all kind of came together. I, it Also, it's luck as well, right? Because as ever with these big jobs, it's what happens. To the bloke or the woman who was before you yeah (laughs) that is often the determining factor um so no i mean i i edited the news of the world for four years you know and then i spent i spent the next five not the next five but i spent at least five talking about it
0: i've heard you speak before about um, this
1: ailment you call editoritis Mm. can you explain to us the symptoms of this mainly uh there's one core there's there's one core symptom, and that that's that you consider that yourself to be the center of the universe, and that all things revolve around you. Um, I mean, I, I joke slightly um, because it was a you know particularly when you know newspapers were in their pomp, there was a fair amount of arrogance around. You know there was a there was a fair amount of kind of you know we're driving the agenda. You know mm. it's really only our view that matters. Um, and also a misguided arrogance that that you know that, that the business was more resilient than it than it was. Yeah. You know uh, uh, certainly in terms of the print product. You know, and it's taken a long time for um, you know for my former employees and others. They're not this is not a challenge that I've just faced them. It's right across the board. Right to work out what the answer might be to these problems, and the answer, of course, is great content. You know yeah if you look at the if you look at the times now which i'm a big fan of it's a fantastic product and it's a fantastic product not because it's giving away a free copy of a film every every weekend it's a fantastic product because it's got just brilliant brilliant journalism and that yeah. obviously costs money and uh, and the challenge is to find ways to, to to you know to kind of make sure that people will continue to pay for that but i think they will if the content's great um uh, yeah, but editoritis. I suffered from it. I don't think I was necessarily the worst, but I definitely had some some spells. Um, and uh, and yeah, um, I, I do. I think as, as you as you get older, right, if you've done any any sort of significant jobs, you you kind of look back and you think, my God, why was I so exercised about these things? As I said, just as we started talking, you know, about this, you know, the situation with the royals. But you you kind of got to be that's your job. Yeah. And and if you're going to get that involved and that interested and excited and at times angry about things, I think that can create a degree of uh, a degree of editoritis, as I, as I call it.
0: So let's talk a little bit about your time in Downing Street. You, we've mentioned um, you, your kind of awareness of the changing atmosphere around politicians potentially from tony blair onwards yeah i mean it seems from the outside like bringing a former editor into downing street is letting the fox into the hen house in many ways do you think that's a fair assumption but how did you first link up with the kind of cameron team to get involved well i'd actually
1: spent far more time with blair and with labor um because as a journalist you're you know you're you're far more focused on what the government are up to than you are the opposition yeah. so i knew them and i knew that lot. i knew uh, you know a number of the labor cabinet pretty well uh and i got to know you know michael howard when he was still a leader who i liked came very close actually to backing the tories when howard was was leader um that is a difference between The Sun and The News of the World. At The Sun, you know, that is a conversation that Rupert Murdoch's very involved in. Yeah, I was given my head, you know, The News of the World could could go where it wanted it to go. And and we came very close, actually, to backing Michael Howard. But in the end, we didn't have faith in the wider team. And we stuck with Blair. So I knew Michael Howard. And then I hired, actually, William Haig as a columnist. Uh, he was a brilliant columnist for us. Yeah. Um, that's an aspect of editing that I really enjoyed that kind of putting your team together. You know, we had some great columnists, Fraser Nelson, you know, uh, as well, we used and John Stevens, we snatched from them out uh, when he left, uh, when he left the Met to be a, to be a columnist, some really good voices. And William was a brilliant columnist. And then, uh, and then as as they moved towards a change of leadership, I spent a bit of time with uh, with George Osborne and, and then with David Cameron, but we were, You know, I was still editing the paper then. We were pretty sceptical about this new team, Um, pretty sceptical about David, Uh, you know, that whole hugger hoodie. You might remember that. Yeah, Yeah, that was a News of the World headline. Yeah. So we'd run some supportive stuff, but we'd also run some pretty critical stuff. But I liked George. Uh, We got on. And then when I left the News of the World, uh, and then I had sort of five months of wondering what it was I was going to do next. Uh, I was actually in a conversation about potentially going to uh, New York to edit another newspaper. Uh, and at the same time, I got approached by the Tories uh, and I met wow. George for a drink. And he actually, they asked me to be the chief exec of the Conservative Party, uh, which I didn't want to do. Uh, but I did quite like the idea of being at the centre of things again, of being yeah. you know, involved in a more strategic way. And I met David, met the rest of the team. And then over a over a period of time, we, you know, we got we got the job. And it was um my plan actually was was not was just to do just to stick with them through opposition. I wasn't gonna go into Downing Street. I'd sort mm. of promised my wife that, mm. that having done the news of the world for, for as long as I had, that this is an exciting, really fascinating challenge. And I wanted to do it, but you know, I wasn't gonna then bury myself in in an, in another addictive job. Yeah. Uh and of course, as we got closer to 2010, closer to the election, David, um, David and I were getting on very well. You know, it was working very well, and, and you know, and he he flattered me enormously by saying that you know we I don't think we can do this without your help on the comms front, and we want you to stay. And that was very flattering. And by then, I'd, I was hooked, to be honest, because politics is like that. It's a pretty addictive place to be. It's terrifically yeah. exciting. It's such a it's such a such an amazing kind of brain stretch you know and i had the you know the added benefit of having a pretty big team i really enjoyed that always enjoyed kind of you know that element of the jobs that i've done building a big team building some camaraderie you know building that kind of shared mission and then of course once we got over the line and into number 10 uh we were you know we were in coalition so i had to build a team with not just my own colleagues from the conservative party but also the dems yeah. And so that was an amazing challenge. We're just a f- you know a few weeks previously we've been at each other's throats. Suddenly we're in a room having to work out how we're going to kind of operate together, and that was uh, that was a that was a fantastic challenge.
0: How did you find the kind of daily atmosphere of Downing Street? I can imagine the the pace and scale of decision making would even kind of trump that of a daily newspaper editor in, in some ways, and not to mention the the sheer size of the personalities potentially and egos from yes. the Spads right up to the kind of ministers and obviously the the top players. What was it like day to day? Was it a kind of bear pit
1: or was it um, a, a more genial place than that? It was a mix, you know, right. and, and like newspapers, there are personalities that are individuals that you'd, you know, from a distance you'd say, you know, they're in it for the wrong reasons. Yeah. But the vast majority actually I would I would put in a different category They're you know, hardworking, very smart, very smart people who frankly could be, you know, having a much easier, probably more lucrative life elsewhere, but who chose to be in politics, mm. you know, and that uh, that was certainly the case with the team that we had around David, but it was, yes, a lot of big personalities, but politics, you know, there's a, we've, we've seen it with COVID, I think, you know, this, this sort of idea that there is a, you know, that there's a kind of an emergency break glass system or some magical yeah. switch that gets flipped and that this kind of incredible operation swings in you know like uh you know like a like a you know that classic kind of sort of movie scene right that the situation room springs into life and yeah. algorithms are kicking in and it's nonsense you know it's a bunch of people in a room scratching their heads trying to work out what to do next uh, invariably armed with imperfect information and and using their best judgment and you know sometimes that results in the wrong decision but more often than not you know you land in the right place um, but the process to get there can be pretty messy at times. And that, you know, from an advisory point of view, you know, that which was my job. right? I wasn't a politician. I wasn't there for policy. I was there as an advisor. The key to that was, you know, was trust, right? Was that ability for, for me to walk into a room, very fortunate position of being able to walk into a prime minister's office with him asking me to shut the door and we'd sit and have a proper chat and really talk through the problem that we were facing or indeed the opportunity that we weren't for every reason grabbing yeah and that is a that's just a fantastic place to be right i find that i found journalism really rewarding on so many levels but i find that advisory piece yeah uh, more so uh, which is why i'm doing what i'm doing now for a living. And I want to
0: talk about that in a bit. Hmm. I'm interested in around um, David Cameron, particularly a lot of the narrative at that time that was kind of gaining traction, actually. And I don't think we think about it as much now, was that here was a, a privileged toff, essentially. Yeah. And yeah. I say this with my, with the accent that I have, hmm. who who kind of smooth talked his way up the the rungs, wasn't really a conviction politician. And yep. they called him, him and George the kind of essay crisis boys who would just try and Oxbridge their way out of any problem. How much were you That's trying it. to fashion the kind of narrative around him as opposed to just the general day-to-day firefighting of of a comms person?
1: Yeah, I mean that was the core of the challenge in opposition. Uh, let's say once we got over the line, but in opposition that was absolutely the core of the challenge. And and Labour's attack, which as you rightly point out got traction for a while, mm. was this you know this simple attack that they're inexperienced toffs, and there were some big moments that, you know, in and around that issue that I was, that I was involved in. And, and I, I just took, I just took the view, uh Joe, that I think it's the Essex in me actually, you know, <laughs> cause I, I come from, I come from Essex and, and you can't characterize an entire County, but I'm going to. Okay. <laughs> and, you know, a, a Essex people generally, we just don't care where you're from. Mm. right we don't care what your background is we don't care where you went to school all we care about is you know are you any good at what you do right Uh, are you smart and I took that attitude uh, into politics and that's exactly what I said to David is that look I'm just not sure that people are making those kind of judgments about you if you're not any good then they will definitely beat you with your silver topped cane right, that they imagine you walk around with, right? If you're not any good, right, then it absolutely will be weaponized and used against you. But they've not made their mind up as to whether or not you're any good yet. So let's not worry about the class. And most importantly, let's not pretend that you're something that you're not, right? Because you are a man who's had an incredibly privileged life in lots of ways. He's also, by the way, had had incredible difficulty in his life. Of course. But he's had, uh, you know, with his father, and of course, you know, with the tragedy with his son, but he, at his heart, in my view, and I certainly came to believe this with real conviction, was just a decent bloke who mm. is a patriot who saw politics in a very simple way. I remember him saying to me once: someone was arguing that there should be a sort of book that kind of you know sets out Cameronism, and I very rarely, very, very rarely saw him get angry. But he got angry in this meeting, and he said, "Look, I don't need anism. We're not about anism. You know, I just want to leave it better than I found it." Mm. And yeah. I, I, I really like that as a philosophy, right? That's, that's good enough for me. I don't want someone who's going to claim to remake the world. I want someone to leave it, you know, better than they found it. And that's where we ended up. And so the, the big moment to change actually was the crew by-election, uh, which everyone thought we would get absolutely hammered in. Uh, Labour turned up. The Moss Bros in crew still remember this day fondly because they sold out of top hats and, uh, and morning suits. <laughs> That Labour activists were wearing as they wow. kind of, you know, ran around the streets campaigning. And that attack was the front, was the absolute sort of shop window of the the Labour of the Labour campaign. And it failed miserably. So, you know, and that was in crew, by the way, that was not in Essex. <laughs> so, you know, that was a big moment for us. You know, that was a kind of action do you know what? We're right about this. Let's just be ourselves. Let's not pretend. And by the way, if we end up at a conversation about education, then yes, absolutely, I went to Eton. And how lucky am I? And that means yeah. that I know what a great education looks like. And I'm determined that, you know, that as many people as possible get to have as much of that as possible. And that's that's the, you know, that's, that's the approach we took.
0: You were obviously close to him professionally, but I suspect personally as well. Do you, you still speak to him now? Have you spoken to him since?
1: Yeah, yeah. You no, know, we speak from time to time. Um, you know, we had, we had lunch uh, earlier in the year, um, or last year, I should say. Yeah, I think when you do those jobs... They're so intense. Uh, you know, an election campaign is like no other campaign on earth. And ours was long, right? Because if you remember, we kept being led up the hill and then back down the hill again. And we never quite knew when the election would be. Yeah. I mean, I almost had the shortest political job in memory because I joined, you know, after a disastrous set of local elections. And then we went into a conference season that was, you know, we were way behind in the polls. And then George and David put together, you know, the most amazing Kind of turnaround at conference in Blackpool uh, with some fantastic kind of policy announcements and some, and just some some really you good know, some really good, uh, some really good um, you know kind of broader politics around it that that turned the ship around. But we were up and down the whole time. When is this election actually going to be? And that causes your team to become very very close knit, right? You really are fighting that kind of you know life or death you know are we actually gonna because it's bit binary right politics it's not there's no middle ground you either win or you lose
0: yeah
1: uh, and that has a, a real kind of should have anyway it doesn't always have but for us it had a very cohesive uh, kind of effect on us all as a bunch of individuals so those friendships kind of endure you know yeah um, so yeah we're still in touch and i'm still in touch with george and uh, and a number of others uh, particularly you know, some of the people that i work with you know in in terms of the comms team
0: well yeah we'll see what david cameron does next people are very very interested in his next moves i'd wonder if he'll go to the private sector like george has gone into a a private bank hasn't he
1: he has yeah he has i mean yeah david's still a um obviously still a relatively young man yeah you know in political terms i think he's still got um you know i'm a bit biased obviously but i think he's still got a big role to play in public life but uh i'm no longer involved so (laughs) who, who knows where that will go
0: we shall see so of course, after your your career in politics, you had the a period of your life that I suppose has come to define everything since. Um, certainly in your kind of work now as a as a consultant and also mm-hmm. with your podcast, crisis. What crisis? Because this was the biggest crisis of your life, of course, and it's come to define define you. I think it's probably fair to say, in in some ways, was um, your conviction and eventual imprisonment. Well, I think you, mm. how many months did you eventually end up serving? Was it five or yeah, just under five what i've heard you say before that you one of your coping mechanisms in, in prison was using a kind of journalistic lens to look at things why do you think that was important to you and what did you kind of hook on what what would your editor be be thinking with the juicy hooks about prison so to speak
1: i don't know i don't know if i was, I was looking at it necessarily from a, a kind of story perspective but yeah. i was certainly looking at it from a kind of you know more broadly from a kind of observational perspective right because that's what you do as a journalist you know that ability to just kind of look at the world and, and 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 be interested in it i suppose and i and i made a very very conscious decision that that although this was going to be a pretty miserable period of my life um i was going to make the most of it and the the one thing you can say about prison is it should be quite interesting right yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, you're seeing a system on literally from you know the inside that is that for me anyway, I thought this is this is going to be really interesting. It's also going to be mind numbingly dull. And of course, if you've not been in the prison before, as I hadn't, you're also wondering about actually how does this thing work? What's it actually going to be like? I was in Belmarsh, which was, uh, you know, for the first part of my sentence, which is a high security prison. So quite full on. You know and obviously that makes you think what is this thing actually going to be like but i was um i, I was genuinely interested in it you know and i'd obviously i had been around law and order from a media perspective and from a political perspective and here i was now not that i thought that my life would ever end there here, here i was as an inmate and it was uh on one level on uh, one level, it was fascinating. And I just engaged with it. I talked to a lot of other prisoners. You know, there wasn't an enormous amount of opportunity in Belmarsh because you spend so much time inside, inside your cell with the door locked. But, you know, if I was walking around the yard, I'd always make a point of walking around the yard and having a good chat with someone. Um, that's always been my sort of approach to life. And I couldn't, I didn't see why it should be any different in prison. And as a result, I had some really fascinating conversations with some really interesting people. You know, and the kind of entrepreneur piece is one of your themes on the, on, the, on the podcast, you know, that really did jump out at me because I would be walking around the yard with a, I remember one series of conversations I had with a, with a lad who was in prison for quite a, a long time, considerably longer sentence than mine. I can tell you, he was among other things, you know, he was a, he was a drug dealer, had been a drug dealer. And he talked to me very frankly, very honestly about why he was doing it. Uh, and how he did it right how he operated he was a drug dealer in north london um and it was i mean there were some properly dark aspects to it but there was also an entrepreneurial aspect to it right he couldn't see another way of mm. being entrepreneurial other than being a drug dealer and when he talked me through the mechanics of his business when he talked me through the sort of, sort of math of his business he was talking to me as though he were some kind of startup entrepreneur it was it was the same it was the same it was the same language right Mm -hmm. in a way and you could see him almost kind of remembering the early days of his business as he would call it and that sort of glint in the eye of the kind of early days of expanding and rolling out and i'm not trying to glamorize it right no it's at all but but the truth of a, a lot of a lot of these guys who are in prison is that they are entrepreneurs gone wrong right Right, and that that if you can capture that spirit at the right point in the journey and redirect it then there's real opportunity there and i saw that because i i although i spent you know too long in a high security prison i eventually got moved to an open prison called hosley bay in suffolk and that's a resettlement prison right so its job is to prepare people who've been in prison for however long from by the way life sentences you know down to a short sentence like mine and get you ready to kind of go back and I and I got a job there Uh, I was the uh, orderly in the education department and my job was to help uh, other prisoners kind of get their CVs ready I would do mock job interviews wow uh, and I would do Dragon's Den presentations with this fantastic woman called Tina who was running who was you know who's running the education department at Hosley Bay brilliant woman and we would sit and you know these lads who are now by the way at the end of their sentences right so at the other end of the spectrum to the conversation walking around the yard yeah and and they were pitching their future right here's a business idea a lot of them were anchored around gyms or around um you know a couple of them security businesses let's you know let's disrupt the world of, you know, of, of nightclub security, let's find yeah. a new way of doing it. It was fascinating. And that kind of seed of entrepreneurialism was still alive, right in those in those lads, some of them by now, you know, in their early 40s, mid 40s, some of them older have been in prison for quite a long time, right for a large lump of their life. They still had that kind of, you know, I want to make it work in some way, of course. It was fascinating it was really fascinating one of the one of the big issues was this issue of disclosure right and that we would spend a lot of time chatting to to prisoners about uh, you know do you tell your employer that you've been in prison yeah you know and that is a really difficult issue because if you're an employer do you want to know i think you probably do uh you certainly want to know if it was a very serious crime and if you know, if you've been away for certainly, if it's if it's violence involved or 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 or, or anything more serious, of course you would want to know that. But there were also some lads who were in for. I'm not going to cast any judgments at all, and right? I'm not going to talk about any individuals. But you you, you can, and also you have got to when you're in prison, you kind of got to understand that you're not necessarily being told the full truth by everyone you speak to. All right, I think for a lot of them you were, but you, you got to you know you got to keep that in mind. But if you've if you've been in for you know if you're a lad in your early twenties and, and you're in for fraud of some kind, is, should that stay with you for the rest of your life? Yeah. So that you can never you can never find a place in, in, in the workplace now. You know I, know, I was in prison with someone who I know has changed their name. Right. I I'm, I was chatting to someone not that long ago who has got a very successful business and who's ready now to go to the next level and to looking for investment. That's going to be really difficult. Because he's got a conviction in his early early twenties. So look, I'm not pretending I've got an answer to these problems, but what I what I'm saying, in essence, is that I think that there is some talent. I think there is a well of kind of you know usefulness for society that sits in prison, and it can't be beyond the wit of man to try and find a way of of channeling that in a more positive way than we currently do, because. What i can tell you from talking to the prison officers and i talked to a lot of prison officers you know during my time i was interested in their view is that when they leave when prisoners leave the resettlement prison they disappear from their system until yeah. as as the, as the as the governor said to me until of course they come back around a few years later and i see them coming through the of coming out the back of a van again yeah so that's so you know that's interesting i think area from a from a for potentially from an entrepreneurial you know from an entrepreneurial business perspective
0: I'm surprised. Well, there may be out there someone who's doing something, but I'm surprised there isn't a kind of incubator almost that's thought about
1: harnessing that
0: untapped potential. Business. No, there
1: are some brilliant people, are far better equipped than me, uh, okay. A, to talk about these things, and B, to, to to do exactly that. So there are some brilliant projects, right? You'd probably heard of The Clink in Brixton, right, which is a restaurant. Yeah. What a fantastic idea. Great. You know, I know of, I know of another guy who's just setting up a brilliant charity I spoke to the other day who is uh, around bike repairs right uh which that sounds mad but it's a really really good idea right and he's going to use he's going to use only uh ex-prisoners uh, for that timpsons yeah right are an amazing um supporter and and rehabilitator of 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 ex-offenders into in, into their businesses uh, and i've i've advised a, uh, another brilliant charity in the past called bounce back Uh, Who are you know who basically train skill in prison and then when they come out of prison, painters and decorators and scaffolders, right? So uh, they do brilliant work. So yeah, uh, yeah, there there are some there are some fantastic there are some fantastic charities doing fantastic work. I'm interested in the
0: work you do now. The kind of that theme of of crisis. Mm. Um, You obviously had your own crisis, and in prison you must have met many people whose lives had been probably hit a lot of the time by crisis and tragedy in their own way. And then, you know, at the, in the newspaper, you were certainly reporting on, if not sometimes fomenting kind of crises in comms and then obviously government is nothing but um, (laughs) crisis, crisis, crisis from the outside. I wonder if there were, you know, how you've gained kind of different perspectives across that timeline on, on the severity of different crises on, on what crises look like, on how best to deal with them. Is there a kind of through line we could make? That would be very neat, wouldn't it?
1: (laughs) It would. It would. Uh, I think that I, you know, I'm reasonably good in a crisis. I was reasonably good in in terms of handling my own crisis. I mean, not just because of me. I mean, the most important reason why I got through it in good shape was because of my family, because of my wife uh, and, you know, my kids. You know, that's the single most important thing for me. But... But my uh, crisis mu- uh, muscle was pretty well exercised because of the jobs that I'd done. Definitely. yeah and, and also because what led to the eventual crisis, what led to to prison was a very, very, very long process, right? I've been my trial was eight and a half months. Mm. So you know I, my, my, my crisis muscle was very, very well exercised. Um, but it was well exercised in in Downing Street and certainly as, as you pointed out in newspapers because i was I was from a different perspective handling. Creating at times crisis, um, and I, you know, what I, what I've sort of come to, where I've, where, 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 you know, where I think I, I landed, and when I found myself in the midst of one, is that you've got to do. You know, you, you, first and foremost, you've got to be present in your crisis without getting too airy fairy about it, right? You've got to understand that that you're in crisis, mm. and you've got to, and you've got to accept it. Uh, And you then got to work out what you've got control of and what you don't have control of. And that's actually a very difficult thing to do. But it's the single most important thing, right? Because that will inform your day-to-day behavior. And once you've worked that out, just concentrate on the things that you have control of and that's eventually where i was able to get to because you know when i first found myself in crisis it was multifaceted. right i didn't just have this one legal issue i had a whole bunch to deal Mm. with at once so it was every day was a whole load of new incoming all of them pretty existential and i had to work out you know which ones did i actually have any influence over Uh, and then i stuck with that and then the next thing is to work out actually how do i and this perhaps does go from the journalism piece there's a bit of trying to give you a connection here but i think there is one because it goes to storytelling right and all my jobs really are a bit about a storytelling uh, i kind of concentrated on well, how did i want my story to end if i could and i was very clear on what uh, how i wanted my story to end and i knew that there was no quick answer to that i knew that it was going to take time and i knew that my reputation was being you know significantly to put it mildly you know damaged i knew that my you know the bits that kind of made up my life were being dismantled um, pretty rapidly uh, uh, and i didn't know what the answers were but i knew that if i if i focused fully on the long term and not try and solve all these short-term problems that were coming through almost on an hourly basis at some points then i would get through it and that's exactly what i did and uh, and and although it took a long time for me to get any certainty about when it would end, apart from anything else, because of course when I was in prison, I came out and went straight into another trial in Scotland yeah. that would have had considerably more serious consequences had it gone wrong. But I was had it gone wrong, but I was acquitted. Should never have happened in my view in the first place. But I was I was I was acquitted. Only then could I really start to think about where the where the door was, if you like. And then I sort of walked back from there, and and I and I was very clear when I was in number ten. I wanted to. I'd only ever been an employee, you know. Mm-hmm. I'd been a bit of an entrepreneur, I suppose, in that I'd done a lot of creative stuff working for other people, but I'd never been an entrepreneur. And I was very clear because those are the people that I I I really do admire in life. Uh, that I was going to set up my own business, and you know, I rather hoped that I wouldn't be setting up a business with a you know with a with a fairly heavy rucksack of everything that had gone before. But that's mm-hmm. how it was. And I decided to make that work because I'm also quite stubborn. So you know, I really wanted to focus on building a business, my own business, and that's um, and that's exactly what I've done with the help of some brilliant colleagues. I've got two fantastic uh, partners in my business, um, John Stiefel, who was the deputy editor of the Daily Mail for over a decade. Brilliant man. Susan Adams, who worked for Rothschild. Um, as a as a strategic advisor and among other things it's just fantastic we've got a great sort of engine room of of younger people that we're that we're bringing on and developing and i've got you know where i've been unbelievably lucky and fortunate is i've got some fantastic clients you know who understand the value of advice from someone who's been up and down the hill a few times and that's that for me you know is is where i think you know the power of great advice is to have people in the room who've lived a life who've kind of stared down a few problems of their own and who've, who've got a view, but who don't have an agenda, you know, and that's, that's essentially what we offer.
0: Yeah. It's a, it's an interesting thing, advice, isn't it? Because different people have different takes. I guess there's a kind of mix between hard experiences, you say, kind of gut feeling, but also a lot of the time with consultancies kind of hard data and, and research, where do you fall on that? on that scale
1: i'm i'm experience over algorithm right you know i, I just i'm not i'm not a i'm not a techie right yeah. and i'm not um you know i know my way around and i you know, i took the same view with polling funnily enough you know and I'm, I'm not going to devalue the you know polling in the political context but it has its place but it shouldn't it shouldn't be the deciding factor in my view i think instinct is an experience is far far more valuable yeah. And that's that's what my business is all about. Uh, is that we're we're about experience. We're not about algorithm. We 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 know we know our our way around. We know how to, how to see the value in a piece of analysis, but we're not we're not that firm, um, you know. we're there really as trusted advisors. Uh, and you know we say we say three things to our clients. They happen to be exactly the same three things that I said to David Cameron when I uh, when I started working with him. Uh, that i'll always be available uh, that i'll always have a view which sounds ridiculous for an advisor right because that's what you're paying for but i've been in plenty of rooms with advisors where when you get sticky in particular mm. they sort of blend into the wallpaper and you know we don't do that we will have we'll give you a view and we'll be right more than we're wrong and whatever the proposal said if we're wrong more than we're right we're not much used to you so, you know, we live by those three rules, really. And, you know, that, that was the basis on which I worked for David. And that's the basis on which we now work for our, our, our clients now. Um, and, you know, if you get buy in from a, from a client to that idea, it's really empowering for us because we feel that we have the confidence to get it wrong as well, right? We have the, we have the room to get it wrong. And that's, that's where you get really smart advice right you want advice that isn't constrained you want advice that is based on you know kind of you know that, that kind of authentic experience mm. uh, and you know that was always the, the the type of business that i wanted to that i wanted to build when i when i came out of politics because that's how we operated in politics that was my job right was the kind of consigliere go in shut the door trusted advice piece that i described earlier campaigning all right. What is it that we're trying to achieve here? Where are we trying to get to what's in the way or what might be in the way and then crisis. So, um, you know, on those three front, three, uh, three fronts, I think we've got, um, you know, we've got, a de- we've got a decent offer, but we're not, you know, we're unlike most firms out there because we are, it's a horrible word, but we are, we are a boutique firm. Yeah. You know, it's not, we're not building a mighty empire. It's not an Edelman or a, you know, or whatever, we? you know, we are, uh, you know, we're a small firm. And because we are all in, in the way that I've just described, yeah, you know, without whichn't to sound cocky or arrogant about it, um, advisoritis beware. <laughs> um, I, uh, you know, we're pretty picky about who we work with, because yeah. because we are all in, you know, we commit fully. And so we can only do that for a certain number of people. Before we let you go, I want
0: to ask you about your podcast as well, mm. crisis, what crisis, which is a, another kind of incarnation of your career. Yeah, amazing, wide array of people who've had all sorts of things from from business and personal crises to some true kind of tragedies. Um, and I suppose the, the narrative around crisis and failure these days may be helped by the podcast world is that the failures are the things that really make us and our biggest mistakes often are our biggest lessons. Yes. One of the interesting things we often ask people in this podcast is for their biggest failures and mistakes. And despite everything I've just said, everyone always says, oh, I, I, uh, I don't see them. I don't have any. And we very rarely get a tangible answer. Yeah,
1: mine are mine are fa- mine are fairly easy to access. Right, okay. yeah.
0: I wonder where you fall on on this kind of very modern, sometimes slightly um, hippie ish thing that actually bad things are always good things. Is it? Is it do you think that's broadly true that we learn a lot?
1: Yeah, I do. I do. And there are some brilliant podcasts, you know, long, but been around long before mine that have got got into that, you know, uh, that, that, into that point. My, my podcast is more focused on the, on the specific lessons of, crisis right uh, you know and it was born out of lockdown right it was it was an entirely practical decision i love podcasting i think it's a fantastic medium uh, because of its reasonableness it creates a kind of a reason as i hope we're having here you know a, 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 an environment for a reasonable conversation which there is a yeah. great absence of in in life at the moment uh, where you know everything seems to be so black and white no room for the gray um and I, uh, and I and and I, I work here I live in Kent, I worked in London and i uh, had an office in london and i uh, and like everyone else, you know suddenly found myself working from home, saving all that commuting time and I thought I'll put it to good use and i'll and i'll and I'll start a podcast and we got some amazing guests incredibly yeah. lucky you know uh, people as you said have had suffered crisis from a multitude of different angles, you know and the idea that you know we just finished the third series we've had you know, and uh, Niall Rogers through to, you know, Lord Sedwell, you know, in the space of a few weeks, you know, Jeremy Bowen, Mark Hicks, the restauranteur, uh, Richard Bacon, amazing woman called Paisy Mahmood, who suffered, I won't, I won't tell you the full story here, but just the most astonishing crisis in her life of a forced marriage, her sister being in a forced marriage, her sister's story is very well known, was the subject of a TV docu, a TV drama very recently. Mm. Terrible tragedy. Um, You know, uh, it's a privilege, actually, not to get too, um, you know, not to get too high minded about it to sit and chat with someone for an hour about the proper dark moments in their life and to ask them how they got through it. And that's essentially what it is you know and we you know there's stuff that's come out of it that has been incredibly useful for me <laughs> never mind the audience yeah you know hopefully it has been has been reasonably useful for the people who've been listening to it but um i found it incredibly incredibly helpful you know uh some really sort of some one-liners that come out of people's mouths that you're you know that i'll that i'll, that I'll never forget um and all of it on the basis of something actually that martha lane fox said to us she was our second guest um second or third guest and she uh and she said uh, you know crisis isn't a competition so that idea that crisis isn't a competition is is basically the you know the the central tenet of the podcast you know it doesn't matter what, what what why it happened to you what happened to you we don't even apply any judgment to that it's a judgment-free zone so as a result we've had people that are, you know lords and ladies uh right the way through to you know former inmates including mm. one that i for a while uh was in prison with you know chris lewis the former england cricketer who talked with real power about his crisis you know so it's um it's a real it's a real privilege actually and i it does scratch a bit of the journalistic itch i suppose from my past you know i always loved interviewing and there it's a bit of that about it but more than anything else it's useful you know i hope anyway that it kind of it really does sort of dig out those dig out dig out those kind of useful lessons from you know from people who've been through properly properly tough times
0: well it's an amazing listen and thanks very much for joining us on this podcast Andy it's been it's been fascinating and very enjoyable to have you here so thank you again No thanks for having me it's been an absolute pleasure Well, if you enjoyed that episode of the Gentleman's Journal podcast, you'll almost certainly love the Gentleman's Journal magazine, the world's finest dispatch from the front line of luxury, entrepreneurship, and style. In fact, lucky podcast listeners like you now get 20% off our annual subscription. Just enter the code POD20 at thegentleman'sjournal.com to find out more.